Who can be a part of the church? Question for you to consider. Who can be a part of the church? Uh, For those of you who have been Christians a long time, that might seem like an obvious answer, but for those who are not Christian or new to Christianity, it might actually be something you have to think about. I don't know. Who can be part of the church? It was a question that was asked to me once by a, a college friend of mine. And he was kind of interested in just this Christian thing. So he asked me, like, so, like, how do you join a church? What is that like? Like, who can even be a part of one? Those are genuine questions on his mind. He wasn't a believer and he was curious. For our church, as you know, we have requirements to officially be a member of the church, to be uh, formally a part of CBC. We have requirements that are laid out that... First, you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And we profess faith through baptism, so baptized is one of the requirements for uh, a member of our church. You have to agree to our statement of faith. There are statements laid out that we all, as a church, believe. Uh, We believe are scriptural and uh, core to our common faith and practice. So we have a statement of faith that you would have to adhere to. There are, uh, there's a membership covenant. There are things that we agree to as a body that we're going to do together and hold one another up and lift one another up and encourage one another. There's just commitments that we have as being members to a church. So we have some things that are requirements to belong to CBC formally. Maybe just as important as what is required is what is not required to be a member of the church, to be part of the church. For example, you are not required to have had a certain religious background before being part of our church. You don't have to have had a certain Christian education or even have, honestly, a well-formed system of Christian thinking. You don't have to have gone to a seminary. You don't have to be able to recite whole chapters of the Bible. You don't have to have demonstrated a long moral record of good behavior. So that before you're a part of us, you prove you've really paid your dues. You don't have to come from a certain ethnic background or a certain demographic. All of that is a way of saying anyone can be part of the church. No matter where you've come from or who you are. If you believe in Jesus Christ and are in him and are committed to being a part of our community, no matter what your background, you can be a part of the church. And this is true for all Christian churches. No matter what your background is, no matter what your ethnicity or heritage or culture is, you can be part of the church. It's why we in our denomination have churches that kind of come from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds. Across town, one of our denominational sister churches is an Ethiopian church. And it's why right now the Mennonite Brethren, our denomination, which is historically kind of a European denomination, it's where it originates from, we are now in the process of looking at a number of Congolese churches, of Congolese immigrants who have come from the Congo and are here in the U.S. and are looking for a church home, and our denomination is looking at how do we bring Congolese churches into our denomination. Why? Because ethnicity is not a requirement. Cultural background is not a requirement or something that keeps you in or out. Now, for a lot of us, that is, well, of course. That's a no-brainer. That's not a controversial thing. That We just assume that. But why do we assume that? And I would say we assume that because of what we see in Scripture, and particularly in places like Acts 9 through 11. And Peter's interaction here with some Gentiles 
this morning we're going to begin kind of a three-part mini-series on Peter's interaction with Gentiles. And the question comes up at a crucial place, a pivotal place in the book of Acts is, can these Gentiles be part of the church? For those of you who don't know, Gentiles is just a way of saying non-Israelite. They were Jews and Gentiles. And these verses, these passages in Scripture deal with the relationship of Jew and Gentile. Can these Gentiles become part of the church? We'll see that Gentiles can be part of the church. And what God does is basically prove it to the church. He'll prove it to Peter and the rest that these Gentiles are just as much a part of the people of Jesus Christ as the believing Jews were. So our our organizing question over the next three weeks, we're going to answer this one question for three weeks straight. How does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? How does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? How does he show, through Peter and others, that anybody can be part of the church? How does he prove it? That's the question we're going to answer over three weeks. We'll find our first answer this morning as we work through three sections of Acts 9 and 10. We're going to kind of leave on a cliffhanger. There's no great way to break up this whole section. But we'll go through three chunks here and have our first answer to that question of how does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people. First, we'll look at Peter's coastal ministry in Acts 9.32-43. through 43. Acts 9.32-43, through 43, we zero in on Peter and Peter's coastal ministry. We were focusing on Paul, now we're going back to Peter for a little while in the book of Acts. Peter's coastal ministry, verse 32. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In these days she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. If you remember from last week where we left off in the book of Acts, there was relative peace for the church for a short period of time. Why was that? Well, because their main persecutor, Saul, had been converted and was now on their team. So they had a moment of peace. And this kind of reminds me of if you're ever flying and you hit turbulence and the seatbelt sign is on. 
And then what happens once you exit turbulence? Pilate says you're free to move about the cabin, seatbelt sign goes off. That's kind of what was going on here. Turbulence had ceased, so Peter was free to move around. So he's traveling and visiting some churches. He comes to the first church in Lydda, visiting Christians there. He's heard that some people have believed the gospel. He wants to go check it out. And this is a little bit north of Jerusalem, towards the coast. And he stops there and finds that there is a man who had been paralyzed for eight years, laying down. And what happens? We don't know much about the man. We know his name. Well, honestly, I actually don't even know if he's a believer. I kind of assume he was. Not sure. But we know that Peter is able to heal him. But Peter doesn't take credit for it. What does Peter say? Jesus Christ heals you. The Lord is working through Peter in order to raise him up. And what else does he say to the man? Make your bed. This is not a parent telling their child to organize their bed before they go to school in the morning. This is him saying, you don't need that anymore. You're lying on a mat for a long time, but you're no longer bound to the floor. You can get up. Does that language, that whole scene kind of sound familiar to you? Might remind you of what Jesus said to the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in John 5? Get up, take your bed, and walk. Luke is painting a picture for us here very clearly that Peter has a similar ministry to Jesus in this. He's in the line of Jesus as an apostle, doing the same miracles that Jesus did. In fact, he'll do another, even more miraculous miracle as he makes his way to Joppa. Joppa was a town on the coast, about 12 miles up from Lydda. Some saints hear that Peter was down in Lydda, so they say, hey, let's send a couple, get Peter over here. Why? Because one of our beloved sisters has died. We don't know much about her. Uh, I, I take it she maybe was younger because of the dramatic response to her death, but I'm not sure. But it seems the people were convinced that Peter could help. So they go and they get him uh, because this woman in the church has died. Her name is Tabitha in Hebrew or the Greek Dorcas, which is not an insult for your friends, kids. That, that's it's the Greek word I think means something along the lines of antelope. But look at what's said about her in verse 36. She was full of good works and charity. If you had to choose what went on your tombstone, that wouldn't be a bad choice if that was how you were remembered, if that was your legacy, full of good works and charity. She was well-loved, people mourning over her. And I love the personal note there in verse 39, because this, this sounds so churchy, right? Would have stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. This is what she did. She made clothes for people. This is how she blessed us while she was alive. Just wanted to share who she was. A very personal touch. As wonderful as that is, Peter then asked them all to leave. He has all the mourners and the weepers and those showing the things that Dorks had done. She was up in the upper room. He asked them all to leave. I'm almost reminded of a doctor telling everybody to leave the room. We need to deal with my patient here. You can't do that with everybody walking around and he needs to focus. 
So he has everybody clear of the room. He gets down and prays for Tabitha. But again, as he does this, it sounds familiar, doesn't it? You may be able to think of a couple instances in Scripture where people were raised from the dead. If you know your Bible, you might be reminded of 2 Kings 4 and Elisha, who raises the Shunammite's son. In that story, Elisha also has everybody clear the room. 2 Kings 4.32 says, When Elisha arrived at the house, there was the child lying dead on his bed. He went in by himself and closed the door, and he prayed to the Lord. So he also, in seeking to revive this dead child, son of the woman, he needs to be by himself as he prays. It also reminds me what Jesus did when he raised Jairus' daughter in Luke 8. A story where he raised this man Jairus' daughter from the dead. He didn't require total isolation, but he did have people clear the room. Luke 8, 51. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him, except Peter and John and James, and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. It strikes me that Peter was in the room while that happened. He was one of the few who Jesus allowed in that room while he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And now Peter's doing the same thing that he had seen his teacher do. As everybody cleared, he gets down and he prays. He says, Tabitha, arise. Holds her by the hand. Escorts her out, presents her to all the people calling them the saints and widows. That's how Acts describes them. That's a great name for a Christian rock band if you want to take that. Saints and widows. And just like the healing of Aeneas, word spreads and people are converted. So what happens when the kingdom of God comes upon a place, the gospel goes out and people are healed and ministered to and they're cared for. Wherever the kingdom of God is, life is brought with it, and when life is brought, people turn to God. And in some ways, this is what the church should always look like. Not that we uh, should anticipate or expect people rising from the dead all the time, but we should anticipate and expect that people come to life as the church enters. There's something specifically I want you to notice. First, notice that Peter is in some ways needed here. And what I mean by that is, there were other Christians... And there were other saints there. They're the ones who called for Peter to come and help. Which is why I say we should not anticipate that wherever there's a church, people should be coming to life from the dead. Or even miraculously healed from paralysis. It doesn't appear that this was an everyday common thing. There were other saints there who couldn't do this or it wasn't happening through their prayers. And the scripture never criticizes them for it. It never says they lacked faith. It never says they were lesser Christians. It never even says that really that Peter was a, a greater Christian. The point is that Peter had a specific role in the early church as an apostle. He had a place to play. And they knew that he was an apostle and maybe he could help. So that's what happened. They called the apostle over. And I think this is actually really what's important. That Peter is an apostle, and that's why he's able to do this. And Peter has a specific God-given, called role here. I bring that up because I want to ask this question. Why are these passages here anyways? Specifically, here in Acts 9. 
we've already seen in the book of Acts miraculous healings, people raised to life. So we knew that was happening. We knew that God was at work doing that. Why does Luke, the author of Acts, repeat some of those stories here? I'm assuming there were other stories and similar things that had been left out. Scripture never records everything that happened. As John says, the pages would be too many to record all that Jesus had done. But Luke has a specific intention in including these miracles here. And what he's doing, I think, is underlining Peter's role as an apostle and as one through whom Jesus worked. He was in the line of Elisha, in the line of Jesus Christ himself and the great prophets. Peter was one of the same, and he had that role. And the reason Luke is highlighting that is to show you that when he does what he's going to do next, he's in line with God. It's set up. It's validation of Peter's ministry. So when he goes and ministers to the Gentiles, as he does, it isn't an aberration. It isn't outside of God's will. This is God's will. God's hand is upon Peter in a miraculous way, and that validates his ministry to these Gentile people because what he's about to do is controversial, as Peter himself will experience. The way, the way he's going to welcome others in, Gentiles in, just like Jews, it needs validation, even miraculous validation, because of how controversial the conclusion will be of all this. So Luke, the author of Acts, and God himself is validating Peter as one who has God's power upon him and God's stamp of approval as he goes and ministers to Gentiles. And that's exactly what happens here. But first, we're going to meet the Gentile. That's what happens in 10 verses 1 through 8. In 10 verses 1 through 8, we see Cornelius' angelic commissioning. How I'll label that section. While Simon is in Joppa, Cornelius is a Gentile not far away, having his own experience with the Lord. He's visited by an angel. Verse 1 through 8 of chapter 10, Cornelius' angelic commissioning. Verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, had departed, or when the angel who spoke to him had departed, He called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So here we are introduced to a man named Cornelius. He resides in Caesarea, which is just up the coast from Joppa. Cornelius is a centurion, meaning he leads. Centurions normally lead about 100 soldiers. He was over the Italian cohort, and the cohort might be around 600 soldiers. So he is in leadership in a powerful position. He is um, well-regarded and of high estate as a Roman in the Roman army. He's a respected Roman official. At the same time, he is a devout, godly man. He is what is known as a God-fearer. We've talked about this with the Ethiopian eunuch. He's a God-fearer, and a God-fearer is a Gentile who worshipped the God of Israel. 
He was not a, an Israelite or a full-blown con- convert to Judaism. He would not necessarily have access to the temple and worship and all the full privileges, but he was a God-fearer. He knew the God of Israel. And we see how he's devout. He feared the Lord, which means he obeyed him. He obeyed the commands of God. He gave alms. He gave money to the poor. He gave money to people. He was generous with his finances. And he prayed. He was a man of prayer and dependence upon God. And that's what he's doing here. At the ninth hour, in, the, in that time of the day, or according to that custom and culture, the day started at 6 a.m. For some of us, the day begins later. But for them, the day started at 6 a.m., so the ninth hour would be 3 p.m. That's right around the time of preparation of the evening sacrifice, and there he is at 3 p.m., and he's praying, and all of a sudden he's terrified. Why? Because an angel visits him. We've seen this over and over again. Angels are scary. Like, that's a consistent truth of Scripture. When angels appear to people, they're freaked out. And so you see Isaiah, or Isaiah chapter 6, or John in the book of Revelation, or even Mary herself. The angel has to say to Mary, don't be afraid. When angels appear, they're scary. They're supernatural and glorious. And he is terrified, but he has the wherewithal just to ask, what is it, Lord? What do you need from me? And what does the angel say? The angel, the mouthpiece of God. Your prayers, your alms, your devotion has come up like a memorial to God. This is incredible, wonderful reassurance for a non-Israelite. It's amazing that an angel appeared to this Gentile, a Roman soldier. God hears you. God knows you. Your worship is acceptable to me. I have received it. I hear it. I see it. It's an affirmation of Cornelius. And then there's a commissioning of Cornelius. Send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. By the way, quick note, this is how you know this story isn't made up. A good author would not put two people with the same name right by each other, right? This is how you know this is history, not fiction. When you read through Harry Potter, there can be a bunch of different names. You don't name the same, two different people the same name. But that's what happens here because it's history. They're both named Simon. One is known as Peter the Apostle. The other is a tanner, which also, by the way, what does a tanner do? Works in animal skins. What are animal skins to Jewish people? Dead carcasses, unclean. So the Lord is setting us up here. Peter is already staying in an unclean house ceremonially. Just kind of, I think, an interesting note, setting him up for what's going to happen. So Cornelius sends men to Peter, and this is how you know Cornelius has respect and allegiance of his men, because he sent them, and there's no argument. You need to go... Joppa, pick up a guy named Peter. Why? An angel told me. Okay. They, they trust Cornelius. They're devout men themselves. They're in his house, and he has the respect of them, and he sends them, and they listen, and they go. And maybe he pays them well. But as I reflect on this whole scene, a couple things struck me. First, just in general, if you want to know what a godly person looks like, Cornelius is a great place to start. He's a powerful man. He has 
a whole lot of authority, status, privilege, you could call it. But he wields it righteously. He's generous. Gives to the poor. He is obedient to the Lord. He is dependent upon the Lord. Prays such that even as a non-Israelite, the Lord knows him and hears his prayers and responds to his worship. It's the first thing to note. If you want to know what a godly person looks like, Cornelius is a great example. And now also consider this. Cornelius, as godly as he is, is still missing something. As good and godly as he is, he even in some ways knows the true God, yet he is still missing something. He still needs Peter. Specifically, he needs what Peter has. And what Peter has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what Cornelius is missing. As good as he is, as religious as he is, as godly as he is, it is imperative that he also know who Jesus Christ is. God will not leave him as just a good man. That is not sufficient just to be a good and godly person. It is not sufficient for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And for him to be part of God's family, part of God's new covenant people, he must know who Jesus Christ is, which is why God arranges an entire angelic visitation so that he could learn who Jesus is, so that Peter could be sent to him. God arranges and orchestrates things such that Jesus will be known by him. Do you understand how significant that is? It's a confirmation that being good and godly is not enough to know fully who God is. This is the, the imperative, the basis for Christian mission. We must take the gospel out even to godly, quote-unquote, people. They have to know Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It is not good enough for God just to leave them in their relative goodness and say, oh, they're fine. No. He must know Jesus. Because it's not about just being good in this life. It's about knowing the king of eternal life, knowing Jesus Christ himself and what he's done. The best of all people desperately need the gospel to hear that God has sent his son, the Savior, the Messiah, to forgive the sins of this world and save this world. People need to hear that Jesus died on a cross to remove our guilt and shame, that we don't have to be condemned in our guilt anymore. People need to hear that we can be forgiven and have a changed life in Jesus Christ. More than that, we can be united to Christ in life and death forever, that all the pain in this life will one day be ended when God makes all things new and recreates the world into the new creation, new heaven, new earth, under the King, Jesus Christ. People need to hear about who Jesus is so that they may know him as King and live in his kingdom forever. This is important for us to hear as we interact with the good people in our lives. And I say this because there are lots of good people here in Johnson County. It is theologically true that all people are fallen and sinful 
it is experientially true that most people are quote-unquote decent people. As we go around and interact with those who don't know Jesus, you'll find that most of them, these are pretty nice people, actually. A lot of times you're going to find, you know, I actually like them a lot better than a lot of people at church. The non-Christians in my family and friends and the ones I work with, like, they're good people. But the truth of Christianity is not that, like, oh, well, if they're good, that's cool. The truth of Christianity is that no one's good enough. It is only by grace, by faith in Jesus Christ specifically, that we are saved. We are not saved by the goodness of our religion. We're saved by the one we have faith in. It's his work. So we need to know him. Which is why Cornelius, as good as he is, needs to know who Jesus is. That's why God has him send men to Peter and sends Peter to him. That's going to happen. We'll see that next week as they interact. But first, Peter has a divine visit of his own. Verses 9 through 16 in Acts chapter 10. Peter has this vision about food of all things, which is strange. So I'll call it Peter's dietary vision. Peter's dietary vision. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So as Cornelius' men are on their way, Peter has a divine visit of his own. He's on the roof of Simon the Tanner. It's the sixth hour of the day, which is what? Noon. So we're almost there, and just like us, Peter's hungry. And he's thinking about lunch, and someone else is preparing it. So while Chipotle prepares our lunch, he had people downstairs who were preparing his, and he's in a trance, and some of you may understand that, even as you're hungry and you're feeling a little bit tired and sleepy. That's how Peter felt at this time. And so, fittingly, God gives him a vision of food and kind of capitalizes on his current state. You're hungry? Here, eat. He gives a vision, and it comes down from, on a sheet of four corners, so that sheet would be, it's actually the same word that's used for like a sail on a ship. You might think of the tent that we stretch out. Remember when we met outside in a tent and the tent that will be set up, I believe in a couple of weeks for a Lollapalooza event like that tent, as you all who are part of that crew fitting that tent on, just reminded, you can be reminded of this vision. This sheet comes down by four corners, which is a reference to the four corners of the earth. When you hear four corners in scripture, you should think global in every direction. And she was lowered from heaven, and on it are every kind of animal under heaven. So if you're a kid filling out your worship worksheet, you can take this moment and you can just draw animals that were on the sheet, right? 
Like, what kind of animal is on there? Well, every kind under heaven. And they're classified, actually, in three groups. When it says animals, that means animals that have four feet, reptiles, things that crawl on the ground, and birds. And that's kind of a Jewish way of classifying animals. I'll prove it to you, Genesis 6.20. All the animals that go on the ark. The Noahs take all kinds on the boat. Of the birds, according to their kinds, and the animals, according to their kinds, those are on four feet, and of every creeping thing on the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. So the three major categories of animals is a way of representing all animals, and I'm pretty sure this must have been a Cajun buffet because they have birds and reptiles in it. And kids, if you want to draw what Peter does next, or what God commands him to do next, you can do that too. What does God command Peter to do? Kill and eat. The word kill also can be translated sacrifice. There's a little bit of a religious implication in this. Rise, Peter. Kill and eat of any kind of animal. And that's a surprising command from the Lord. Why? Because it is in direct violation of the law of Moses. It is in violation of the Old Covenant Code. Leviticus 11 details in length what kind of animals were clean and unclean for Israelites to eat. There were certain animals that were off limits for Israelites. So Leviticus 20, 25 through 26 says, You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Do you see what's going on there in those verses? God has demanded, according to the law of Moses, the Old Covenant Code, that his people were to eat some things and not other things, and that would be one of the ways in which they were separated from the people of the earth. You are to be a separate, holy people, sanctified, set apart, clean, and as to be reflected in even what you eat. So some things are off limits for you. You have to keep kosher, as it were. So you're not going to have shellfish, not just because some of you might be allergic, but because it's part of what makes you religiously clean. There's some birds that are going to be off limits to you. Some crawling things, off limits. You are to eat only that which is allowed by law under the law of Moses. We applaud Daniel for keeping to this, right? He doesn't eat the meat or the food provided to him in Babylon, and he's applauded for it, for maintaining dietary restrictions. So we don't blame Peter here when his response is, like, this has got to be a test. No way, God. He's not being defiant of the Lord. He's trying to obey what has already been laid out for him in Scripture. No, I won't eat that which is unclean. Yet, God insists. The voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. And what the Lord is saying is, I have sanctified all animals now. I have set all apart. There is nothing unclean anymore for you. All are holy, all are sanctified, nothing off limits. Go and eat. And that would be a hard thing to believe, so it's repeated a couple times. Have you ever heard something need to be said to you a couple times before you get it? You're in good company with Peter. It's happened three times. The thing was taken up at once to heaven. 
what does this vision for Peter mean? I'm going to explain it to you in a weird way. So it means that the laws and rules and covenant stipulations of the law of Moses that made Israel Israel no longer apply. And I'll explain it this way. Um, I love Transformers. If you're a kid, what's your favorite toy? Mine, Transformers, always have been, always will be. And in fact, I'm a big nerd in that way. And recently, I had a birthday, and my loving wife actually bought me a Transformer for my birthday. Right? So you can leave the church now if you're... It's just what kind of pastor you have. Um, and it was a really cool kind of Transformer, because it's a triple changer. Uh, what I mean by that is the one that goes from a robot to a car and to a helicopter. Not just two forms, three modes. Awesome. So... Just the engineering of that I love. And, I, and I was, this is a complicated one, so I actually needed instructions. And I was looking at instructions, and it told me, you know, it came in the package in the car mode, and that was its base mode, right? That was the, the kind of base mode. And it said, okay, here's how you train to a robot. It said, now, don't go from robot to helicopter. Because if you do that, you'll miss steps, and it'll be janky. It's not exactly what the direction said, but more or less. The direction said, before you change it to a helicopter, go back to car mode. And then from car mode, you can go to helicopter. That that car mode, in order to convert it, was a necessary intermediate step. It was essential, or else the helicopter would be messed up. Or vice versa, according to helicopter to robot. What does that have to do with this? It was the conviction of the earliest Christians before they were corrected or taught, the conviction of the earliest church was, for in order for somebody to be Christian, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, they had to be Jewish first that that was the necessary intermediate step. Because the Jewish people were the people of God. They were the ones who were given the covenant of Moses. That in order for these Gentiles, a Gentile like Cornelius of Roman, in order for them to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, uh, he could do that, but first he's going to have to be Jewish. He's going to have to come under the covenant. He's going to have to be circumcised. And he's going to have to go to the, the base mode, right? This is the starting point. It is Judaism first. And then from there you can springboard your way up to Christianity. And what this is saying is absolutely not. God is changing things and saying, you no longer have to go to Judaism first in order to be Christian. You can straight, go straight from Gentile, follower of Christ. That is huge. It removed the restrictions. So that people did not have to follow the law of Moses in order to follow the Son of God. That concept is revolutionary and is something that's dealt with in the entire New Testament. Hebrews, Galatians, Romans, Ephesians, all of it. This idea that you do not have to follow the law in order to be Christian. But in fact, we are one in Christ. Commentator Daryl Bach says, The food laws underscore Israel's separation from the nations. By making unclean food clean, God is showing how table fellowship and acceptance of Gentiles are more easily accomplished in the new era. The vision symbolizes that what separated Jews from Gentiles is now removed. Or, as Ephesians 2, Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Did you hear that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. God has removed the boundaries of the Mosaic law. In older cars, I'm not enough of a mechanic to know, which is to say I know nothing about cars, but I believe in older cars, and I don't think this is true anymore necessarily, but there's a governor, right? Somebody can say yes or yeah, there's a governor. What does that do? Digitally limits how fast you can go. And if you, you want to get optimal performance out of your car, you just get rid of that. The law was a governor for Israel. And for a time, the law was in place over the people of God. Why? To govern them, to restrict their disobedience, to show them how to be the people of God. And it kept them as the people of God. But something else has come that is greater than the law. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, and he has ascended and has poured out his spirit upon all people. And if, you, if you are in Christ, you have the spirit of God. The law is no longer needed. Something better has come to keep the people of God as the people of God, to unite them as one. So there's no sense in going back to the law that's what kept us for a time as God's people. But now what keeps us, what unites us, is the law of Jesus Christ, as Paul will call it in 1 Corinthians 9. We're united in Christ. And here's the big takeaway from that. Because of that, anybody can become a Christian. You don't need to keep kosher. You don't need to have a perfect track record. You don't need to convert to another culture. You don't have to have our culture. You don't have to be Mennonite first and then Christian. You don't have to be European first or African first or South American first. You don't have to be another religion first or anything like that. Anybody from anywhere can know Jesus Christ and be part of his family. That is the basis for the mission of the church. And it's important for the book of Acts that this is established as the gospel goes out. So the question we're going to answer over these three weeks, how does God prove that all kinds of people can be his gospel people? First answer is this. God removes the covenantal barrier between Jew and Gentile. God removes the barrier, the covenantal barrier, the law that separated them. God removes the covenantal barrier between Jew and Gentile so they can be his people. Would you pray with me? My Father God, we thank you for this wonderful gospel truth that we don't have to be other people before we're your people and before we're Jesus' people. Lord, the applications and implications of that are limitless. They're spelled out all across the New Testament. What it means to be the people of Jesus Christ. 
We pray, Lord, that we would go out with two of those convictions. One, that people need to know Jesus Christ. And two, that all people can know Jesus Christ. And can become fully a part of your family by knowing him. Lord, we thank you for this word. We pray that you convict us of your grace and your truth in it. Amen.